Open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. We have come to the last bit of the Thessalonian letters, and um, there's going to be, I say there's only going to be two more, but that didn't work in chapter 2. So in chapter 3, there might be four, there might be, there might be two, but we're slated to finish this in this week, and then one more week, maybe two weeks, depending on how long, how long we go. Um, but we've come to the end, and at the end of Paul's letters, he frequently does a prayer and then kind of final exhortations, final comments about how things should happen and what's going to happen. So we come to the final prayer and final exhortation. And, and one of the things that we take great delight in with Paul is that he's like most pastor figures. He's like most pastoral leaders. He says, let us pray, and then says in conclusion and goes on for another chapter or three. So we have this picture here where he goes, finally... And then he's going to rattle off a bunch of stuff for a whole another chapter. He's going to go. He's going to add literally a third to the book, one third more stuff to the book, and that's his finally. It's kind of like uh, it's kind of like when you're walking out to the car and somebody goes, "Well, I I guess I'll let you go," and then you talk for another hour and a half in the parking lot. Like that's what Paul's doing. So uh, here we come to this passage and. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 1 through 6. Let's read it together, and then we'll dive right in. So here we go. Follow, finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of God may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the, lo- may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Let's pause there at five. I was going to read all the way through um, the text, but we'll stop at five there and let's Let's just remind ourselves of what's going on. So he has just in chapter 2 talked about the end coming and the lawless one who's going to come, the rebellious one or the rebellion that's going to come. And he's talked about these two specific things. Jesus is coming back, but he's coming back. You know that it's after the lawless one and the rebellious one. And those are specific things. We see this as those are specific things that are going to happen. So the lawless one is going to be, and the rebellious, the rebellion is going to come. These are two specific things. Now that's not to be confused with this mystery of lawlessness, which is increasing, or the many antichrists that John talks about in 1 John. That's, these are specific things. And so he says, when this guy shows up, when the rebellion happens, Jesus is going to come back. He's going to eliminate the lawless one. He's going to end rebellion, and it's going to be over. And we talked at length about what that means. And then we talked about what, that, what the implications of that are. And they were intense. What, was, uh, what most people would just breeze past, we spent five weeks doing in 2 Thessalonians verse, chapter 2, verse 13 through 17. So there's a lot 
in that previous passage, that kind of foundation stuff. And then he ends with this prayer, which actually he prayed in verse 16 that the Lord Jesus Christ himself would and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace would comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. And then he says, finally, brothers, pray for us. So in light of all this, in light of all these things, Paul responds to the brothers and says, pray for us. Pray for us. Pray for those who are working. Pray for those who are in the ministry. Pray for the missions area. Pray for your pastors. Pray for those who are laboring in ministries. Pray for us. Pray for us. And so the question arises. Why? And these, these are contentious questions that we get from other people most often. But the question arises, why pray? Why, why would we pray? If God is sovereign, why pray? Because then he'll do what he wants. If God is not, say, it works both ways, by the way. If God is not sovereign, why pray? Because you have to do all the work anyway. Right? So it works both. That, that question works both ways. Both ways are wrong ways of thinking about it. But you get those questions. You get those questions. You get the questions, why pray? Because... We, you know, if God is sovereign, he's going to do whatever he wants anyway. Or why pray? Because if God is not sovereign, you have to do the work anyway. So instead of praying, why don't you, you know, invest in a bunch of apologetics books? Um, so we have these, these two laboring questions. And the, the answers are not simple, but they are simple. And so first, if we do the work, then why pray? Or if God does the work, then why pray? Right? That's, those are the two questions. The first answer is really quite plain. Because God says so. This is the first one. And I tried to explain this to one person pretty recently. Um, it's been several months, but it's been in the last year. I tried to explain this to one person. When, when my child comes to me and says, at 10 o'clock at night, I want chocolate cake. I don't sit down and go, hey, you can't have chocolate cake because, you know, the sugar is going to get into your system and you're going you're gonna to be up for hours and then in the morning you're going to feel sluggish and slow and I'm going to have to come in and, like, it's going to be, you're, it's going to be difficult, you're going to be cranky. Like, I don't explain all that. I go, no, you can't have chocolate cake at 10 o'clock at night. And they go, well, why not? And I go, because I said so. Because I'm not going to sit here and explain to you your met- metabolic rate and all these things. Like, you're, you're seven. I'm not going to tell you that... I'm going to sit there and explain all this to you. I'm just going to tell you, no, go to bed. And the, the kid's going to go to bed. And then as the child grows and, and learns, maybe they'll figure out that having chocolate cake at 10 o'clock at night is not a good idea. Or maybe they'll figure it out and, and maybe we'll have conversations in the future that talk about these things and they'll be able to apply them. So it's not as though we avoid giving them the answer, but rather there's an appropriate time to give a full and exasperated answer. And there's an appropriate time to look at the person and go, no, because I'm the dad. Why, why can't I do that? Because I'm the father. I'm in charge and you can't do it. That's, parents, hear me. That's an acceptable answer when it's given in love. When it's given in irritation or anger, it's not an acceptable answer. But when it's given in love, when, you're, when you process the answer and you've gone, what my child needs to understand right now is that there's an authority here they need to know that, then it's an acceptable answer. It's okay to look at your child and go, 
because I because I'm daddy. That's why. You know, it's okay to do that. So just by word, if you've had a, a rough week where you have looked at your kid and went, because I said so, after explaining yourself, you're all right. You're doing okay. Just take a deep breath and and move on. The but because God says so, so here's a couple passages, right? Philippians chapter four, verse six and seven. Matthew chapter five, verse 43 through 45. Matthew chapter 26, verse 41. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17, you're told to do so without, without ceasing. You're supposed to pray without ceasing. In Isaiah chapter 55, verse 6, it says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. In other words, God is saying, I am God, pray to me. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18 says, You're to pray at all times in the Spirit. In James chapter 5, verse 16, you are to pray for one another. So you are to continuously pray. This is commanded in Scripture. You are commanded to pray. So that's the first one. First reason why pray. When somebody says why pray, you can go, well, because God told us to. Right? If God does everything, why pray? Well, because God told us to. Second reason to pray is because God seems to work through prayer. God works through prayer. And I can't explain this. It doesn't make sense in my worldly time-trapped brain. But for some reason, the God of the universe, who has everything mapped out, who has everything under control, who everything is in his sovereign hand, nothing happens apart from his hand. And I know the implications of what that means. Nothing happens apart from his hands. And yet... He desires to work through the prayers of, your, of you and me, the, the prayers of his saints. He desires to work through those things. In James chapter 4, verse 2, it says, You do not ask because you do not have. I mean, you do not have because you do, sorry. You do not have because you do not ask. In other words, you can get, you hear what he's saying, you can get things from the Lord that you need through prayer. You pray and ask the Lord and he gives you good things. And he's a good father, not like wicked fathers, because which father among fathers of men, if his kid asked him for a fish, would give him a snake that's going to kill him? Or if his kid asked for bread, would give him a stone? No father would do that. No father would. Even the most wicked fathers on earth don't do that. But God is a good father. He's a loving father and a faithful father, and he will give you every need that you have. You do not have because you do not ask. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 6, Jesus tells us that the Lord rewards your prayers. When you pray, he rewards them. In Mark chapter 11, verse 24, it says, Ask and you will receive. Moses prays in the Old Testament, and it saves Israel two times. He prays in the Old Testament and saves Israel twice. Hezekiah prays and asks for more life and God gives him longer years. Joshua is in battle and he prays and the Lord holds the sun in place so that they could win against the Gibeonites. This is God moving in prayers. Prayer matters. Prayer is valuable. And we pray because one, God told us to, Two, he somehow works through it. Your prayers actually make a difference. I can remember when we first started at Sovereign Grace and we prayed against the Boko Haram in Nigeria. We prayed 
that they would be thwarted. And the next week, we got a report from a church in Lagos, Nigeria, that there had been a bombing. But that the brothers and sisters in Christ had gone to the Boko Haram camp and administered medical aid, and we watched as those girls were released that had been kidnapped by the Boko Haram. We watched it happen in accordance with our prayers a week after we labored in prayer. This happens all the time. I can't tell you how many times we pray for a church here, and then I call their pastor a month, two months later, call them just to ask how they're doing, and the pastor's like, man, I don't know what's happened, but God's really been moving. Stuff has happened, and there's been salvation. There's been life changes. There's been financial blessing on churches that we have prayed for. There's been all these things that have happened just out of the blue, and I'm going, yeah, I know what happened. We prayed, and God answered. God answers prayer because he wants to. So that's why we pray. It's really simple. I told you the answer of why we pray is really simple. God tells us to and it works. That's the two reasons. God tells us to and it works. The second, the second question is, well, then what do we pray? And Paul gives us some answers as to what to pray here. Pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. And that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. So first, we pray that the the word of God would run ahead, or speed ahead, and be honored. And then we pray that the missionaries and and pastors and leaders and each other, we should pray this for each other, by the way, that, that we would be delivered from the hands of wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. So we want to pray for these things. So let's think first about this idea of running ahead. The word of the, God, the word of the Lord may speed ahead. To run ahead like it did in Corinth when Paul is told by the Lord, don't worry, Paul, I have many in this city who you do not know that know me. I have many in this city who are mine. Don't worry about what's going to happen. The word of the Lord went ahead of Paul to protect him. When he was in the hands of evil men, the word of the Lord ran ahead. And when they remember the story of Corinth, they drag Paul out and they, they drag the church out. And they're about uh, the, the mob gets them. They take them before the Roman procurator. And the Roman looks at them and goes, what's going on? And they complain about Paul and the Romans beat the ones who brought them. And then set Paul and his brothers free. And God protects them from evil men by speeding ahead with the word of God. As in Thessalonians, remember when he shows up in Thessalonica, they were receptive to the word of God. Just jump back real quick to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 through 7, and you can see what happened there. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because, and here it is, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power in the, and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know that what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake and that you became imitators of us and the word of the Lord for you 
received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. They showed up in Thessalonica and began to share the gospel and all of a sudden people were convicted by the Spirit. They threw out, we know from later on in 1 Thessalonians that they threw out their idols, that they began to worship together and gather together, that they began to live like Christians and they lived this quiet life like Christians and it was so profound and and powerful that it bothered everyone else. They weren't doing anything to bother people. They weren't interrupting things. They They weren't causing riots. They weren't doing things. All they were doing in Thessalonica was gathering together for worship and living like Christians. They were living with a sense of communal morality and connection with each other. And this was powerful and profound enough to where a mob came and got Jason and drug him out. Jason, the leader of the church, and and drug him out and took him. And the, the governing authorities were so bothered by Christianity, by just basic, quiet Christianity, that they required them to pay a tax in order to meet. This Thessalonican church, the word of God sped ahead. It ran ahead of Paul and Silas and Timothy, and it began to work in the hearts of other people. And then they responded when they heard the word. When the word came, they responded. There's missionary stories like this all over the world. One of my favorites is there's a, a tribe. Gladys Allward has a story where there's a tribe in, or a, a, a monastery type group in Asia where she was going from village to village to end the practice foot binding. And she goes to this one place and she finds a uh, group of monks. And I'm sure I'm not telling the story the way that it is. It's so much better if you read it. But she she goes to this city or this area and there's some monks there and they had found a piece of paper that was a piece of paper from the book of Matthew. They had read it and they didn't know what it meant. But they knew that this must be the God of the universe. So she shows up and she starts talking to them and they interview her all night long, two at a time. They come two at a time and they interview her all night long. And then in the morning she finds out that they've had this piece of paper and she's, she's talked to them about Jesus all night long. And all of them, two by two, had been coming to her. And then at the end, they become believers and she says... What, you know, what was it? And they tell her the story. Well, we found this piece of paper and we read it and we knew it had to be true. And so now we know who Jesus is. Like this amazing thing. The gospel went ahead. The gospel went ahead and made an impression on their life. Just like you meet some people every once in a while who are, who are living a normal life and they know that there's something wrong. And they know there's something wrong. And they've got this stirring in their heart. And they don't know what it is. And then you start talking about Christ. And they, they suddenly wake up. And it's almost like they're pulled from a dark room into a light room where they can suddenly see everything. And their eyes take a few minutes to adjust. And they're rubbing them. And you wonder, are they mad at me? Do they love me? What's going on? And then you find out that God had been moving in their hearts before you ever got there. And indeed, he's still moving and you didn't even do much. You were just in the room. God did the work. 
That's the gospel, the word of God speeding ahead. As it did in Athens when Paul finds believers who followed John. Or in Acts chapter 10 when Cornelius has this desire to be holy. And Peter shows up and tells him the gospel. And it's immediate. As it was with Ananias when when, uh, Paul walked up and, and spoke to him. And he believed. And this is the gospel running ahead. We pray first and foremost that the gospel would go ahead of us. That it would go ahead of those who are working. That it would be in front and that it would move in front. The word always is described in the Bible as active. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. But the word of God is almost always described as active. Something that does something. It's in the word. Okay, so when we think of the word, we think of books on a like a. But there's some sort of spiritual reality here. That the word of God has some sort of force that is Different than any other piece of literature. Any other spoken or written word. The word of the Lord has some sort of power behind it. Now we know what that power is because we're Christian. We know that the power is the Holy Spirit empowering the written and spoken word of God. We know that that's what it is. We know that Jesus is the word of God and he is the life animating force. We know that in in 2 Timothy Chapter 3, verse 16, that hits the, or 17, is that it's the animating force of life that all scripture is God breathed, breathed out by God. So we, we know this. The word is described as active in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two edged sword, piercing to the divisions of the soul and of spirits, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God pierces to the heart. You can literally speak the Bible to people and watch it change them. You can't do that with other books. You know that. It doesn't matter how beautiful or profound or powerful the book is. It doesn't matter how great the literature is. They, they can't do what the Word of God does. Even other religious texts do not do this. The Bhagavad Gita, nothing. Doesn't have anything. The description of clouds in the Bhagavad Gita is beautiful. This incredible Indian picture of the clouds looking down from the clouds on the earth and the description of man is beautiful and powerful and profound. Does not change the soul. You read it and you go, that was beautiful, powerful, and profound. And then that's it. You're done. Then you can walk away. The Tao Te Ching. Oh, if you read that thing, it'll bind you up. It'll, it'll bind you. It'll hold you down. It doesn't lift you out of anything. It rather places you in it and says, just try to forget everything. That's literally a line in there. Try, try not to remember anything. Then you won't be guilty. Right? Because ignorance is sometimes salvation in false religion. Right? You've got the Quran, right? This list of laws and restrictions that you have to hold to. Not helpful. Not helpful at all. Then you've got, you've got all these religious texts, all these ancient Near Eastern texts, all these ancient Far East texts, and they, they all run to the same thing. They all run to the same thing. Um, of emptiness whereas the word of God pierces to the soul and fills the soul giving 
discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So the Word of God is sharper than anything. The Word of God in Romans 9, 6, even when it looks like everybody has rejected the Word of God, it is not as though the Word of God has failed. It is not as though the Word of God has failed. Even if everybody seems to have rejected the Word of God, it is not like it has failed. It has not failed. In Colossians 3.16, the Word of God dwells in you, makes its home in you, and it doesn't stop there. It, it dwells in you, makes its home in you, and it comes out of you teaching and admonishing everyone around you with gratitude and song. The Word of God is what propels the song of the heart. That's why it's so important, just a side note, that's why it's so important that when you sing worship music, you sing worship music that has words that matter. Pointless repetition and worship music that does not matter is not helpful to the soul because you are not putting the Word of God into your soul and therefore that's not what's coming out. Worship music and the music you sing ought to have words that matter. They ought to matter. They ought to mean something so that the Word of God can come out of you with gratitude and song. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5, things are made holy by the Word of God and prayer. If you want to sanctify things, you want to make sure that what you're doing is right and holy, you examine it by the Word of God and prayer. In other words, you ask the Spirit of the Lord to direct you to understand the Word of the Lord. You find your path and work made holy by the word of God and prayer. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, you are born again through the living and abiding word of God. I love that. Right? You're born again by the living and abiding word of God. It's alive and it lives in you and it decides to make its home in you. You are born again by the living and abiding word of God. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, the word of God is not bound. There is nothing that can bind this word. It is, it is the chain breaker. It is the thing that breaks all bondage. There is nothing that can bind the word of God. So we see first that we want this word of God to run forward. And according to scripture, it can. According to scripture, it can. So we pray that it would go before us because it can. So when you pray in the mornings, Lord, can you give me a divine appointment today? Keep your eyes open. Because the word of God does run ahead. Keep your eyes open. And please open your Bible before you step out of your house and look at it and go, all right, what am I going to have in my brain and in my heart that's going to come out? And what am I going to put in there that's going to come out this morning? It doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be perfect. I can remember training a young man to do this um, who was in, he, he's gone into ministry at this point, and he was in a hurry one day and he read, uh, this, lo, there is a painful disease in my loins before he left his house. He opened his King James Bible. He played Bible bingo. Never played Bible bingo. But he played Bible. just went, and then read. And it was like, all right, got to go. And, and he went out. And the funny, he prayed the prayer that, you know, your Lord, please be with me today. Walk with me today. Let's go. And so he goes out the door. He runs out of his house. He was young in ministry. And he immediately meets somebody who was having severe bowel trouble. 
And he was like, you know, I just read this morning that David said, lo, there's a painful disease in my loins. And he was talking about how there was this absence of the Spirit of the Lord. Like he's, he got into a gospel conversation because of that. I think, I think God wanted to laugh at him, right? Like I think, I think God thinks that was funny and was like, all right, you're going to read this. I'm going to work through it and you're going to laugh. And, but I tell you that to tell you this, the, the Lord does this. He runs ahead. We see it all through scripture. We see it all through our lives. We see it consistently. If you are faithful to obey and follow and attentive to what's going on around you, you will see it too. You will see it too. Now, you might be like Jeremiah and for 49 years serve and work and labor and nobody, nobody does anything. You might be like Jeremiah, but the Word of God sped ahead of Jeremiah too and protected him from evil men. The Word of God sped ahead of Jeremiah as well and protected him from evil men. So we want to see also that the Word would be honored. Not this that it would run ahead and do the work, but that it would also be glorified, that it would be made known. Remember, glory is the revelation of what is true. So we want the Word of God not only to run ahead, but also to be glorified. We want it to be honored and held in high esteem. This is the word doxia, right? The, the, it's where we get the idea of doxology from, a statement of glory and reality. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. flow praise, praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. He is to be glorified. He's the one whom all blessings flow from. He's the one who deserves all honor and exaltation. We sing the doxology pretty frequently. This is a beautiful truth. We should pray that the Word of God would be honored or glorified. And then it says, as happened among you. And we talked about that just a minute ago. Then we want to pray the second piece. Verse 2. And that we would be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith, or for faith is not of all. This is a, this is a, a weird Greek statement here. For faith is not all, is what it says. Faith is not all. And there's a genitive, so you have to put an of in there. So faith is not of all. Right, so the idea here is that not everybody is going to believe. The Word of God is going to run ahead, but not everybody's going to believe. Not everybody has faith. And those who do not have faith often end up being wicked and evil men. She says, let us deliver, deliver us from wicked and evil men. There are going to be those who do not believe. Rec- reconcile that in your brain. Understand, no matter how much you love other people, they're going to be those who do not believe. They're going to be those that you labor over and work over and, and pour your heart into who are not going to believe. And it's, and it's going to be painful. And it's going to, be, it's going to hurt. And it's going to be exhausting. But we pray that the Word of God would speed ahead and that we would be delivered from evil men who do not believe. We pray that we would be delivered from them. In John 3, verse 19, it says, The light has come into the world, and the men love their evil deeds more than the light. Or, but the men love their evil deeds more than the light. 
In John 9, verse 39, Jesus says, I come that those who see might become blind, and those who are blind might become seen. Jesus loves the Pharisees in the Bible. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but he is... He pleads with them in every book to believe. He really does care about them. So much so that we we love that story, the prodigal son. Whole story emphasizes this son that goes off and runs away and squanders his money and then comes back. And it emphasizes the father's love to this son. But then it climaxes with the older son coming in from the field who's never left and has always been faithful and has done everything the right way. And there's a party going on and the older son refuses to go in the house. And Jesus is telling this story. And I want you to imagine the scene when he's telling the story. There's a bunch of his disciples in front of him. A bunch of people who love him in front of him. And at the back of the crowd, there are these Pharisees who have been following him around with clipboards. They're the stormtroopers of the Bible. They miss every shot. And they take notes on everything. They've got a clipboard. They're always with their clipboards. You said, you did, you did this, you didn't say, There's you left this word out, you didn't say this right, you did this wrong. And Jesus is constantly, very patiently living, loving them until finally, in the book of John, it ends with Lazarus. And he is so furious because there's a dead man that's been raised to life and they are still mad. And he's done with them. Like he's just, it's over. But there are all these pictures in the Bible where the Pharisees are at the back of the crowd and Jesus is showing them love and affection and he's telling the crowd these stories and he tells the story of the prodigal son. And then you can imagine as he's talking, looking up and making eye contact with the Pharisees in the back of the crowd going, and there's this older brother who's been in the field, who has been working in the field and who's done everything right and didn't squander his inheritance. And he's come back and he sees the fatted calf has been slaughtered for his brother and that his brother has returned. And he sees this big party that's being put on for his brother and he's mad because his brother's having a party and he looks at the father and says, you never even gave me a young goat. I've been here the whole time and I never left. You never even gave me a young goat. And Jesus, you can imagine him looking up and going, what are you talking about? A goat? You have everything. I gave you everything. You've got the... You could have taken the cow. Like, you want a goat? Never said anything about a goat. Come into the party. Come, come. There's plenty. Come. This can be for you, too. He's looking at the Pharisees in the back, and you can see... You can feel it. If you read the story, you can feel his heart breaking for these religious elite people who refuse to listen. There are those who will not believe. And you might love them. I came that those who see may be blind and those who are blind may be seen. Again, this is This is iterated again in Isaiah 30, verse 13, and Jeremiah 5, verse 31, where it talks about false prophets who are all over the place. And they're just, they're bound everywhere. And then in John 7, verse 7, when Jesus says, "The the world hates Jesus because he testifies that their deeds are evil. 
the people who do not believe are making the active decision to love their evil deeds. They're making the active decision to love their evil deeds. We don't need help sinning as humanity. We do that just fine by ourselves. We need help with righteousness. We need help with goodness and mercy. One of the key evidences that someone believes is that they have a change of affection. They are no longer desirous of the evil things that they once wanted. They have a change of affection. One of the key things to look for is that they have a change of affection. So when we hear this, that the Lord will be, deliver us from evil and wicked men, for not all have faith, we need to understand that one of the things we pray for each other is that the Lord would deliver us from the people who aren't going to believe. From people who are wicked. That He would deliver us both from their actions towards us, but that He would also deliver us from the weight of them. That He would deliver us from that because He has borne that weight and He knows how it feels. He knows how that feels. And then we come to verse 3. In verse 3, He begins to tell you why this will happen. So we've seen why pray, what should we pray. Now we see why the prayer will be answered. Verse 3, But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Just like He said back in verse 17 of chapter 2, He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. That can also be just be translated evil, by the way. There's, um, there's a the there, but the evil it's not, there's not a one, so it's like the evil is, is fine. They, the ESV is adding the word one, essentially. Um, verse four, and we have confidence in the Lord about you that you, are, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. So he says, this is why we know. We, we know this will be answered. We know that this will happen because one, the Lord is doing it, and two, you are doing it. Remember what we talked about last week, how there's this weird thing in Christianity where you work and the Lord works and the Lord's the one who works in you and he's the one who works all this out. So all of it's done by him, but you are still working. Like out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Another way to think of that is the heart impacts the hands. So the Lord changes your heart and your hands do something different and the Lord directs your hands. So if you think about it in box terms, right? Like boxes, you want to put us inside a box, put yourself right here, right? And inside you put a little box and in that box, Put Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit moves inside you. Then around that box, Colossians chapter three, you've got G or chapter two, you've got Jesus around you. You are in Jesus. The Holy Spirit's in you. Jesus is in you. Jesus has the Holy Spirit in him and it's in you. So you're inside. You got four boxes now. You got Holy Spirit, then you got your box, then you got Jesus, then you got Holy Spirit, then you got God the Father on the outside of that, and then you got everything being like an arrow through the middle, Jesus. Jesus' spirit, right? So you've got five boxes all together. You're in the middle. God's on the outside. He's on the inside. And he's working through you. But you're still in there. And I think that's one of the things that a lot of our Reformed brothers sometimes forget. You're still in the box. Like, you're still in the mix. You are still uniquely you in the mix, moving your hands, doing things. It's just a practical reality. So he says, we are confident that you're going to obey. You're going to do the things that we've commanded. And then he says, but the spirit of the God, the spirit of God is moving in you. And God is doing it. And why do we know this is going to happen? It's going to happen because he is faithful. 
He is faithful and he will establish you and guard you against the evil one. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one, against the evil that is in the world in chapter 2, verse 7, where it says, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only God restrains it. Right? God restrains it and it won't, it won't take hold until he lets it go. So God restrains it. The evil one, the evil that is already at work in the world. He establishes you and guards you against the evil that is coming in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. He establishes you and guards you against the evil that is coming. And he establishes you and guards you against the evil that swirls around about you in the gospel in the book of James. The evil things that swirl about around you to tempt you. And in Hebrews, the sin and, and, and things that so easily entangle and ensnare that get whipped around you. Those things. He establishes you and he guards you against those things. He is faithful. God is faithful to do those things. He has always been faithful to do those things. Second, we have confidence in the Lord about you. Paul is encouraged and confident in the Lord. Don't you want somebody to say that about you as a Christian? Like, I am confident in you. I'm confident that you can handle what the evil of the world is going to throw at you. That's what Paul is doing. He's saying, look, God is faithful. God is going to provide. God is going to protect. God is going to care for you. I'm confident that you're going to do what you've been told to do. I'm confident in you. So listen, as a pastor, Sovereign Grace Fellowship, I'm confident in you. Absurdly so. I'm confident in you. I'm confident that when people meet people from Sovereign Grace, I'd like my immediate thought is, aren't they awesome? People are like, oh, I met one of your members. I'm like, aren't they great? They're incredible. Every one of you. Not, there's not a one of you that I don't think that about. And it's because we love the word of God here and it has run ahead of us and our God is faithful to establish our hearts. We are watching this play out in our congregation. It's beautiful and it's powerful. It's beautiful and it's powerful. We have encouragement and confidence. But look at where the confidence is. We have confidence in the Lord about you. We have confidence in the Lord about you. Our confidence is about you, but it's in Jesus that we're confident. It's in Jesus that we're confident about you. And what are we confident of? That you are doing and will do the things that we commanded. We're, com- we're confident that you will do what you have been commanded, that you will read the word of God, that it will make an impact, and that you will live accordingly. That your heart will be changed and your hands will follow suit. That's what we're confident of. That's what we're confident of. And then finally, here at the end of his prayer section here, finally, his, the end of his little finally, he says, verse 5, May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of of Christ. So I want you to think first about the love of God. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God. In other words, that your center of your focus, the center of your meditations would be on the love of God. Think just for a minute about that love. This is a love that began at the very beginning of time. God in the beginning set forward Jesus Christ. Genesis 3.15 is the most clear and obvious, immediate uh, 
prophecy that Jesus would come and redeem a broken and fallen world. It happens in the first three chapters. I would argue that even in the creation narrative, He is showing you that He is the one who brings life and salvation over the deep darkness. Even at the very beginning, the very first phrase, the Spirit of God hovers over the waters. Right before that, you've got the flip. You've got darkness was over the face of the deep. And then the Spirit of God comes in and all of a sudden there's life, there's reality, there's truth. And Jesus is the Spirit of God. His Spirit is what brings life and reality and truth. He's the light of the world bringing light into the darkness. This is profound. It happens at the beginning. God has loved you since the beginning. In Ephesians chapter 1, in, in love He predestined you before the foundations of the earth. Before anything, He set His affections on you. In the Psalms, He knew you in the womb. He knew you in the womb. In Jeremiah, He knew you. He knew Jeremiah in the womb and gave him the word. He had a specific love for people from the beginning. For God so loved the whole world that in this way, this is how He loved them. He sent Jesus. He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in Him would have everlasting life. This is, this is the love of God. Just ponder how great and powerful the love of God is in those dark moments when everything seems to be falling apart. May the Lord direct our hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Jesus. Now, consider Jesus. You've got a snapshot of three years of Jesus walking with his disciples. For three years, Judas walks next to him. For three years, Jesus loves Judas and is so faithful to the calling that he never outs him. He never, never outs him. Never throws him under the bus. There's a moment in John 6 when you think it's going to happen. John 6, 66. Did I not choose the 12 of you and one of you is the devil? He is so tired and so frustrated and so angry at people not believing the message of the Lord God who loves them. But in his steadfastness and in his faithfulness, he does not out the one who's going to murder him. He's faithful to the mission of God. He's faithful to the call of God. Even in the face of death, Jesus stands steadfast and immovable. He is faithful and steadfast. Consider the love of God and consider the steadfastness of Jesus who goes to the cross for you, knowing all the while that he's going to do it. So faithful and steadfast that in the garden he sweats blood. And he goes, he goes, Lord, if there's any way, any way that you can do this without me having to do this, please take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Jesus goes to the cross in faithful obedience to the Lord God, the Father, the Trinity, triune God working in perfect harmony. Jesus submits to the will of the Father. That's steadfast faithfulness. That is steadfastness. Consider that steadfastness. Now think about this. 
in all those times when the world looks like it's going to fall apart and everything in your life looks like it's going to go to pot. Like nothing's going to work out in all those times. What Paul is praying here is that the Word of God would speed ahead of us, that, that you would be defended and protected, that we would be protected from wicked men, that there would be, uh, that the, but then to remember that the Lord is faithful and He'll establish you and guard you and that we have confidence in you. We believe in you. Believe in you. And then he ends here by saying, and may God direct your hearts or may he set your affections and your emotions on the love of God and the steadfastness of Jesus. Consider that he's telling you to put your affections and your hearts on things that you don't own, but you benefit from. The love of God is not something you can affect. It is too great, and it is from Him to you. You can't lose it. You can't throw it off. You can't scorn Him enough to to get it tossed away. And if you have trouble believing that, consider the steadfastness of Christ. You can't lose this. When everything seems wrong, remember the love of God. May God direct your hearts to this truth that you have been loved before the foundations of the earth, that Jesus Christ was faithful, died on the cross, that you would be forgiven of sins and rose again, that you would have eternal life. Only repent from sin and believe in Him and you will be saved. Father, we pray this morning that you would show us your mercy and grace and your love. Lord, we love you and we trust you in all things. You are good and gracious and kind. Remind us of your love and remind us of your grace as we come to partake of the communion together. Lord, we love you and trust you. Amen.